jump into it this morning. Psalm 6. It's, uh, this is a, a psalm. In fact, it's the first of, um, of seven uh, psalms that are considered to be um, the penitent psalms or psalms where David is uh, pleading with God for uh, forgiveness and for uh, help against his iniquity. And um, there are uh, six other chapters that are considered uh, the penitential psalms. Um, they would be chapters uh, or the, the 32nd Psalm, the 38th Psalm, the 51st Psalm, the 102nd Psalm, the 130th Psalm, and the 143rd Psalm, along with Psalm 6. And uh, so this, this psalm is going to be dealing with um, David, uh, dealing with his iniquity, uh, his sorrow over it. We're going to take some time to look into some of this. Um, and he spends the first seven verses pleading with God for uh, for his uh, forgiveness and for victory over this sin. And then uh, verses 8, 9, and 10, um, he is now um, having kind of switching gears and expressing his confidence in God being able to do what he's pleaded for in the first seven verses. And so it's kind of easily divisible into those two sections, verses 1 to 7, <clears throat> and then verses 8 to 10. And... Uh, Let's go ahead and read it. He says in verse number 1, O Lord, rebuke me not in thine anger, neither chasten me in thy hot displeasure. Have mercy upon me, O Lord, for I am weak. O Lord, heal me, for my bones are vexed. My soul is also sore vexed, but thou, O Lord, how long? Return, O Lord, deliver my soul. O save me from my, for thy mercy's sake. For in death there is no remembrance of thee, in the grave... Who shall give thee thanks? I am weary with my groaning all the night. Make I my bed to swim. I water my couch with my tears. Mine eye is consumed because of grief. It waxeth old because of all mine enemies. Depart from me, all ye workers of iniquity, for the Lord hath heard the voice of my weeping. The Lord hath heard my supplication. The Lord will receive my prayer. Let all mine enemies be ashamed and sore vexed. Let them return and be ashamed suddenly. It's interesting that there's a great pattern that is given here by the psalmist about uh, how, how to be properly, um, how to properly view our sin. And when it comes to this idea, the Bible tells us um, that uh, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that verse is written to Christians. It's not written for the purpose of salvation. It's really written for the purpose of uh, nothing between my soul and the Savior to keep uh, my my record clear with God and to have that that close communion, that close fellowship. That sin will always uh, sever. It will always drive a wedge between uh, our communion with God, our, our walk with God, if you will, our closeness and fellowship with Him. <coughs> and the that the psalmist certainly has uh, gone through this. Uh, and uh, has had some iniquity in his life that he's sorrowful for. And he gives us a pattern of penitence, and I, I think it's a, a wonderful pattern. In verses number 3 and verse number 6 and verse number 7 of this, he expresses his sorrow. And by the way, uh, we need to have sorrow over our sin. We're living in a day where there is very little sorrow over sin. We may feel guilt. Uh, we may feel... Uh, like, uh, boy, I better go ahead and get this right. But do we truly sorrow over our sin? 
the second uh, 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 characteristic of his, his prayers, plea, is found in verses 2 and verses four, verse 4, where he expresses uh, humility. And in order for us to have a proper uh, way of, of confessing our sin to God and being penitent of our sin, uh, we not only need to be sorrowful of it, but we also need to have a sense of humility about it. <coughs> and so he addresses this. And then in verse number 8, he expresses his hatred for sin. And I think all three of these ingredients are necessary. When we come to God and we ask Him forgiveness for our iniquity and we plead with Him and say, Lord, I want to have that, that uh, time restored with you, that walk with you restored. I believe all three of these ought to be key ingredients of our, our attitude, our expression of our guilt to the Lord, uh, to have sorrow over our sin, to have a spirit of humility, and to have an anger toward our sin, to have a hatred uh, for it. And so we find these uh, three things in this psalm, and they are marks of a truly repentant heart. Um, the title that's given to this uh, psalm is to the chief musician. We spoke about that a few weeks ago. Uh, this musician is responsible for uh, the music and the practice of musical worship in uh, the tabernacle and then later on in the temple. Um, and that was his responsibility. And then there's a couple of uh, musical terms that are used here, Neganoth and uh, Sheminith. And if you have a Bible that has the titles over these psalms, uh, you'll find those in there. Uh, these are ancient musical terms that even the most um, scholarly Hebrew uh, linguists do not fully understand. They don't know what they are. Um, but they, they have an idea that they could uh, lend itself towards stringed instruments. Um, and, uh, but because of the fact that they don't know what they are, they're so ancient, they're so old that uh, they've been lost over the years, even to the Jewish people, the Hebrews. Uh, they do not fully know what these words are. Um, it shows that this is something that God had instituted, uh, or at least were very, very ancient to the nation of Israel, um, by way of worship, that these instruments, these musical things that God had given to them uh, for the purpose of providing music and worship. And uh, But let's take a few moments to look here, if you will, uh, to verse number 1. Verse number 1. And uh, for these first seven verses, uh, David's plea is to the Lord. And you're going to find five different times the phrase, O Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, in these first seven verses. Five different times you're going to find this. And as we've said so often before, the word O in its use often is an expression of deep emotion. Um, one writer put it this way, it's almost like a groan. It's almost like uh, you, just, you just don't know what else to do, and so you cry out, oh! And uh, the idea of this, and five different times in his plea, David uses this little word, oh, before his cry out to the Lord. And so I, I want you to get the sense, if you will, uh, of David's heart as he starts to pen these words. Uh, he begins to cry out to God. And there is certainly uh, a, uh, a sorrow uh, over his sin, a brokenness over his sin. Uh, and I want us to look at this. He says, O Lord, rebuke me not in thine anger. I want you to notice right at the onset that the need for him to be rebuked is not even discussed. It's not challenged. David certainly understood. It's not argued with God. Lord, I don't need to be rebuked for this. He understood uh, the iniquity that he had. He understood the wickedness of it and the need for rebuke. But what he was pleading with God was this, uh, don't, don't rebuke me in your anger. 
I want you to rebuke me uh, with tempered with your mercy. <coughs> and so he says, Rebuke me not in thine anger, neither chasten me in thy hot displeasure. Take a moment to hold your place here and look with me in Habakkuk chapter number 3. Habakkuk, towards the end of your Old Testament. <coughs> Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. That's the end of your uh, Old Testament. So go to Matthew and work your way back a few books. You'll be there. Habakkuk chapter number 3. And verse number 1, a prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet, upon Siganoth. And again, this is the same term that's used in the title, uh, or a similar title, <clears throat> that was used uh, in, uh, in David's day. He says, O Lord, I have heard thy speech and was afraid. O Lord, again, we see this crying out, this pleading, if you will. I heard thy speech and was afraid. O Lord, revive thy work. Notice this, in the midst of years. In the midst of years, make known. And then I want you to notice this phrase. In wrath, remember mercy. In wrath, remember mercy. He's crying out for revival. He's asking for God to, to send some uh, repentance, if he would, uh, to the people's hearts. He understood that the, the nation of Israel had sinned and that they deserved the chastening of God. They certainly reserved, deserved the judging hand of God. And what Habakkuk was praying and what David has prayed here in, in Psalm 6 is, uh, In thy wrath, remember mercy. Don't, 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 don't chasten us. Don't judge us. Strictly from your justice, but may it be tempered with your mercy. And he, you say, well, how do you know that? Because he does verse number two. If you'll look at verse two in verse chapter six of uh, the psalm, or sixth psalm, he says, "Have mercy upon me." And here are those things again that he gives. <clears throat> oh Lord, now he does not seek God's mercy uh, based upon his merit. He doesn't come to God and say, "Have mercy upon me," because uh, I have done all these things for you. I used to uh, uh, be faithful to you. And even though I've sinned now, uh, I did great and mighty things for you and for your cause. He doesn't come to God and plead his merits. But notice he says in verse 2, he says, Have mercy upon me, O Lord, for I am what? Weak. He recognizes his own frailty, his own weakness. And you're going to see this, that in his plea... Uh, he's going to ask God to strengthen him, to help him in this. And he says, O oh Lord, notice this phrase, heal me, for my bones are vexed. There's a, a, certainly a strong expression here of his own weakness. And basically what the psalmist is referring to here is, even though I deserve your justice, even though I deserve really to be, to be destroyed by your justice, because that's the truth of the matter, isn't it? How much sin can God tolerate as a just God and a holy God? The answer is none. If God were truly to, to allow His justice to have free reign and not being tempered with His mercy, uh, we would be consumed. And David recognizes this. He pleads for God's mercy. And he pleads for mercy because he recognizes, Lord, I'm weak. Have pity on me. Understand my my weakness of my flesh. And let thy mercy pity me in my frailty, my weakness. Somebody wrote this about it. He said, urge not your goodness nor your greatness, 
but plead your sin in your littleness. Cry, I am weak, therefore, O Lord, give me strength and crush me not. This is the plea of the psalmist. Are we getting the sense here, or I hope you're getting the sense at least, of the, the brokenness of the psalmist as he recognizes his own iniquity? He's crying out to God. He's pleading with God. And he recognizes that not only does he deserve to be rebuked, and not only does he deserve to be chastened, but he pleads with God, Lord, don't consume me. Don't destroy me. Have some mercy. I'm weak. Have some mercy upon me. And he cries out to God in this, in this idea of a humble spirit, uh, of the fact that he's uh, weak about these things. And he says, for my bones are vexed. And by the way, I would say this, sin ought to be such to us that it vexes our bones. There's a shaking, a fear, if you will. Years ago, I think it was George Whitfield who preached a message, or it might have been Jonathan Edwards, I'm not sure which one of the two, I have to look it up. Preached the message, sinners in the hands of an angry God. As he preached that message and basically had it written verbatim, he stood there and with his head facing down, reading without emotion his message. There was no no there was no animation, there was no inflection of voice and tone. He he didn't want to have people focus on the preacher, he wanted people to focus on the message. If men like that would preach today, people would say that was a boring and a dry service. And yet as he began to preach that message, sinners in the hands of an angry God, men and women around the tabernacle would grab a hold of the pillars that held up the tabernacle, afraid that before the message ended that they would be cast into hell. And there was a remorse and a fear as they recognize their own sinfulness and undoneness. And this is where David is. He says his bones were vexed. There was a fear that took place. There was a a, a reverent fear of a holy God and a just God and, and an understanding and a recognition that should God choose to use only His justice, that He could very easily consume David. He said, my bones are vexed. Can I tell you this? When was the last time we saw our sin as something that God hated? Something that God, should He choose to be only just and not merciful also, could literally take our lives for? Do we understand our sinfulness as sin as strongly as God does and as strongly as David did in this passage? Five times he cries out, Oh, Lord! Oh, Lord! Have mercy upon me. I'm weak. Forgive me. And in thy thy judgment, in thy chastening, in thy rebuke, have mercy. Don't consume me. Don't destroy me. And he says as he gets down to verse number 3, he said, My soul is also sore vexed. Can I tell you this? It's one thing for us to have an intellectual trembling and fear, but oh, that our hearts would melt within us over our iniquity. Not only were his bones fearful and vexed over his iniquity, but he said, my soul is also vexed. 
that the heart would cry out to God in the broken and the contriteness. When the soul has a sense of sin, one person wrote, it is enough to make the bones shake. It is enough to make a hair, man's hair stand up on end to see the flames of hell beneath him and an angry God above him and danger and doubt surrounding him. Well, might he say, my bones are shaken, lest, however, we should imagine that it was merely bodily sickness. But it doesn't matter if the bones shake, if the soul is firm in its resolve. There needs to be a heartfelt, emotional outpouring of a broken heart and sorrowful spirit over our sin. Why is it that in the day that we live, we may feel sorry for our sin, but there's a lack of brokenness over it? There's a lack of sorrow. We've grown too careless in how we deal with our sin. The world certainly flaunts and even celebrates its sinfulness. And Christians have gone right along with the world. Not to the place where we celebrate and flaunt our sin, but we've gone from a place of a broken and a contrite spirit about it to a place of casual admittance and seeking for God's forgiveness, but with lack of brokenness over it. He said, my soul is sore, vexed. It doesn't just bother me in my heart, in my mind, Lord. It bothers me in my heart. My heart is broken over this. There needs to be an emotional outpouring of heartfelt sorrow. And once again, the psalmist cries out, Oh Lord, how long? And he ends his question there. How long? As I read that, I was reminded of the souls in Revelation 6 that were martyred for the cause of Christ that the Bible says were under the altar. And when God's justice begins to be poured out in the end times, they cry out to the Lord, How long, O Lord, wilt thou not avenge our blood? How long, O Lord, are we going to have to endure this? And this is the same heartfelt plea that David has. As he recognizes his sin, his frailty, his weakness, his flesh condition, and he cries out to God in his weakened state, Lord, how long? How long do I have to deal with this body of corruption? How long do I have to deal with the struggle of sin and iniquity in my life? How long, Lord? It vexes my bones. It vexes my soul. Lord, how long? I'm thankful one day that sin is going to be defeated. One day I'm not going to have to have a body that is afflicted by a sinful nature. But until that day comes, may we be broken over it. May we be vexed over it. And may we say, Lord, how long? How long? In verse number 4, David makes a statement, Return. And here it is again. Oh, Lord, a desperation, a plea of strong emotion. Return, oh, Lord. As I read that, I thought of this thought. 
that when our communion with God is broken, His presence seems to be distanced from us. I think a couple things we need to remember. First of all, it wasn't God that moved or left. It was our iniquity, it was our sin that took us from His from his close communion with Him. We don't lose our salvation, and I'm thankful for that, but we certainly lose our walk with Him, our daily time with Him. This distancing of God, David refers to here as one of the main causes of his iniquity and his distress. As he's pleading with God, he cries out and he says, Return, O Lord. And then I want you to notice this. Because I think this is something that when it comes to asking God forgiveness, when it comes to us having a contrite and a broken spirit over our sin, I think this is probably one of the areas that we are most negligent in. And that is this. He says, return, O Lord. And then he says this, deliver my soul. O save me for thy mercy's sake. He doesn't just simply ask forgiveness. He has to be delivered from it. How often do we sin and we come to God and we confess our sin to Him and say, Lord, forgive me of this. And then having been forgiven as God has promised that He would, we go about our day. Where is the heartfelt brokenness and cry to God, Lord, not only do I want forgiveness from this, I want deliverance from this. I don't ever want to do this again. Lord, in my weakness, I understand it. I ask you to give me your strength. And he says, deliver my soul, oh, save me. And once again, he throws himself on the mercy of God for thy mercy's sake. Is God just to to rebuke us and to chasten us? Does he have every right to do so? Absolutely. Absolutely. Does He have every right to destroy us if He wants to, to consume us? Absolutely, He does have every right to do that. But David says, O Lord, for Thy mercy's sake, deliver me from this. I no longer want to be in this situation again. I don't want to be out of Your presence. I don't want to be lagging in the area of my walk with You and my time with You, my communion with You. We go through our life and our Christian life and sin is just a nuisance to us. It's not a vicious enemy against our spirit and our soul that lives, the Holy Spirit of God that lives inside of us. We don't recognize it for the great battle that there is that takes place. We don't recognize it for the great great disparity that it brings upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. The anger of God as He sees our sin. I want you to understand this, that sin and grace are diametrically opposed one to the other. I'm glad that where sin abounded, grace did much more abound, but should we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. David recognizes the fact that God could easily consume him if he so chose, and in verse number 5 he makes the argument to God, for in death there is no remembrance of thee, In the grave, who shall give thee thanks? And basically what the psalmist was saying is, Lord, if you'll spare me, 
And rather than destroy me and consume me in your justice, if you'll temper it with your mercy, then I can live out my days giving praise to you. But if I'm consumed, that praise will be suspended at best. For in the grave, who shall give thee thanks? Thomas Hooker wrote this. He said, churchyards are silent places. The vaults of the sepulcher echo not with songs. Damp earth covers dumb mouths. O Lord, saith he, if thou wilt spare me, I will praise thee. If I die, then must my mortal praise at least be suspended. And if I perish in hell, then thou wilt never have any thanksgiving from me. Songs of gratitude cannot rise from the flaming pit of hell. True, thou wilt doubtless be glorified even in my eternal damnation. But then, O Lord, I cannot glorify thee voluntarily. And among the sons of men there will be no one heart, or there will be one heart less to bless thee. And this is the argument David uses here. Lord, spare me. Spare me. Have mercy. And I will give you praise. I will give you thanks. In verse number 6 he says, I am weary with my groanings. I'm weary with my groanings. All the night make I my bed to swim. I water my couch with my tears. It was the last time that we wept bitterly over our sin. We find a way to weep over others. But when was the last time I looked inwardly to my heart and said, Lord, have mercy on me. Restore to me. Come back to me. I want that close walk and communion with you once again. I've wept in the night hours. He expresses his extent of sorrow over sin. Oh, that God's people would learn this. In the day that we live, there there needs to be an understanding, a comprehension, if you will, of how broken the heart of God is with our sin. And we need to have just as broken of a heart. Hold your place for a moment. Look with me in Psalm 34. The psalmist expresses this a number of times. In the Psalms, he says in Psalm 34, in verse number 18, Psalm 34, in verse number 18, "The The Lord is nigh unto them that are of a broken heart, and saveth such as be of a contrite spirit. Where is the brokenness of our sin? Psalm 51, just a few psalms over. Psalm 51, in verse number 17, the psalmist says, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. If you want to make things right with God, have a broken spirit over your sin. I'm not talking about an intellectual recognition of it. That's what we seem to be so good at. What we suffer and struggle with is we don't have brokenness over our sin. Verse number 17, he says, A broken and a contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. A broken and a contrite heart. You say, well, how can I have a broken and a contrite heart? I believe it begins by praying and crying out to God, Lord, I'm weak. 
My bones are vexed, and that's usually where we end. But if our soul is not vexed with our sin, if our soul is not broken, may we pray to God, Lord, help my heart to be broken by my sin. I'm weak, Lord. I don't always recognize it as I should. I don't always see it as I should. Help me to understand it and to see it. You say, what's, what's this idea of being broken and contrite? David gives an illustration of it in verse 6. Psalm 6 and verse 6, he says, I am weary with my groaning. Men are, men are probably more prone to this than women. I think probably women have a higher pain threshold sometimes than men do. When our wives get sick, fellas, or uh, ladies that we know get sick and we're concerned about them, they get a sniffle and they may be in bed and then they'll get up and do the dishes and vacuum the floor. But let a man get a hangnail and he's sitting on his couch groaning, oh, I can't do this, I can't do that, or we got a little fever, or we got a little ache or pain. And men are good, and this this is, they've actually done studies on this, men are good at groaning when they're in distress. Uh, think of it this way, men. When we get ready to lift something heavy and we know it's going to cause a strain and probably going to hurt us, oftentimes as we're lifting, we let out a groan as we lift. We understand the severity of the distress that we think we're in at the time. And David groans over his weakness. He groans over his sin. Not only does he groan, but according to verse 6, he groans so much that he says, I am weary with my groanings. He doesn't just have a few moments of God with God in prayer in the evening hour before he goes to bed. Or a short devotional time throughout the day where he comes to God and tries to restore that fellowship with Him. But he says, all the night. All the night. There have been a few times in my life, and I know as I've talked with others in our church, that there have probably more than likely been times, even in several of the folks that are here today, where there has been such a dark time of your life, such a broken time in your life, where sleep avoided you. No matter what you tried, and I remember I remember a number of years ago going through a very dark time, getting up, rising up out of my bed about 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning because I had not yet slept, could not sleep. And the burden and the distress upon my heart was so great I thought, Lord, I can't do this. I went down to the church and I spent some time all morning that morning walking around the grounds and pleading with God and praying with God, Lord, I've got to have some relief. If I don't have relief, I'm not going to make it through this. This is some of the darkest days of my life, some of the hardest things I've had to go through. Lord, I can't bear it anymore. It's beyond strength. Sleep failed me and sleep left me. Wouldn't it be wonderful if you and I could feel such about our sin that this is the kind of attitude we had? That sleep would fail us? 
that all the evening, all the night, may come my bed to swim. Meaning he's wetting his, his, his bed itself with tears that are pouring, weeping. He said, I water my couch with tears. Folks, David gives us a wonderful picture of what it means to have a broken and a contrite heart about our sin. I wonder this. I wonder if God's presence would be so much more vitally clear in our lives. Our communion with Him would be so much closer if we had this type of brokenness over our sin. This much of a desire to get this thing right with God. Lord, help me. I'm weak. I'm broken over this. I've not slept. My bed is wet with my tears. Everywhere I go, I can't even seem to get it off of my heart. He said in verse 7, My eye is consumed because of grief. It waxeth old because of all of mine enemies. And I believe that oftentimes when David speaks of his enemies, he's speaking of literal men who were out to get him and to try to try to hurt him. But I believe that this enemy that is being referred to specifically in verse 7, and, and if you disagree with me, that's fine. But I believe the enemies that he's speaking of here are the enemies of his own spirit, his own heart, his own flesh nature. Because the whole context of this has been, Lord, I'm going to be reproved. I'm going to be chastened. I know it because of my iniquities. But when you do, keep mercy in mind. Don't consume me. Help me to be delivered from them. Give me the strength not only to confess them and to get them right, but not to ever do them again. To purge them from my life. In verse 8, he switches gears and his plea with God is over there. And all that we would learn this one valuable truth that David did, having prayed, having poured out his heart to God, having pled with God, he then has full confidence that God heard his prayer. As he now switches gears and he begins to address those that are around him that would cause him to be enticed to iniquity. And he purges his house from this group of people that are workers of iniquity, as he says in verse number 8, Depart from me. Depart from me. I don't even want you around me, ye workers of iniquity. Oh, that we can learn this. It's amazing to me how oftentimes the Bible refers to the fact, As a dog returneth to his vomit, so a fool returns to his folly. The idea being that oftentimes we as God's people... We sin and we're in a situation that, that is, is, is enticing to our flesh and the weakness of our flesh gives in to that enticement and we sin willingly with our hearts and we ask for God's forgiveness and then we put ourselves right back in the same place of enticement. David said, having done all this, Lord, I don't want any of this around me anymore. I don't want anything that would cause my heart to be drawn back to its iniquity. So he addresses those that would be around him. And he says, depart from me. You say, well, pastor, I might lose some friends over it. Better to lose your friends 
and your communion with God. I would far rather lose a friend and have God's favor than to gain a friend and gain God's chastening. I know not everybody in the world today sees it this way, but oh, that God's people would see it this way. Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity, for the Lord hath heard my voice, uh, the voice of my weeping. There's times that our tears flow and we don't even have the words to express. And I'm glad that God hears the voice of our weeping. Aren't you? The Lord hath heard my supplication. The Lord will receive my prayer. And here you hear the confidence of David having laid his plea out before God, his absolute confidence that God has heard me. There's going to be times that we weep. But let me mention this. Those times ought to be short. They ought to be often, but we ought not to linger in that weeping. For having brought our plea to God, there ought to be a full confidence that He has heard us. And we rise from the the kneeling position, or we rise from the time of praying and pouring out our hearts to Him with full confidence that the psalmist had in verse number 9, the Lord hath heard my supplication. The Lord will receive my prayer. And while there ought to be often times of weeping, they ought to be short-lived. There ought to be times of rising victorious with confidence that the Lord has brought deliverance. Someone penned a poem years ago that said, Oh, keep up life and peace within. If I must feel thy chastening rod, yet kill me not, but kill my sin, and let me know thou art my God. Oh, give my soul some sweet foretaste of that which I shall shortly see. Let faith and love cry to the last. Come, Lord, I trust myself with thee. Oh, that we would throw ourselves upon the mercy of God and say, Lord, don't kill me. Don't destroy me, but destroy my sin. Help me to rest upon you. Help me to trust you with my life. David finds a peace as he comes rising from his knees. He begins to clean house. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. says, get you gone. I don't want you around here anymore. And then he has confidence that the Holy Spirit brought to his heart that God heard his voice, the voice of his weeping. You ever notice this? That a pardoned sinner will learn to hate the sin that cost the Savior his blood. The more I understand what Christ did for me, the more I hate the sin that so easily besets. Martin Luther, years ago, on one occasion, had wrestled with God in prayer so hard, agonizing over an issue. And when he was done praying and had agonized in prayer, he came leaping out of his closet crying, Vicimus, Vicimus, which was to say, We have conquered. 
we have prevailed with God. Oh, that we would come forth from our closets, having laid out our plea to the Lord over our sin, having had a broken spirit and a contrite spirit, saying we have prevailed with God. God has granted us His mercy and forgiveness. And not only has He granted us mercy and forgiveness, but I believe He's granted us His strength to overcome. But in the next time of enticement and weakness, I'll have His strength to endure. Oh, that we could learn this psalm. What a great psalm it is. What a great pattern for repenting to God and asking for His forgiveness. What a great charge, if you will, challenge, exhortation to you and I of how we should view the sin that the writer of Hebrews says doth so easily beset us. That we would learn to abhor it, be broken over it, to have sorrow over it, to come in a humble spirit and to cry out to God, Lord, help me for I am weak. I am weak. Let's stand together, shall we? Father, we're thankful for Your Word. I pray that You will bless the teaching and the preaching of it. And Lord, as we come to these psalms, may they encourage us and charge our hearts. May they instruct